Okay, well, morning or afternoon, everybody. We are going to begin this message a little differently, so uh, I need you to just turn to the person next to you and say hello. Excellent. Okay, introduce yourself. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to play a word association game, which means I'm going to say a word to you. You need to say the first thing that comes into your head, but rather than saying it to me because I won't hear anything of what you say, you've got to say it to the person next to you, okay? So I say a word. First thing that comes to your head, as long as it's appropriate, you say it to the person next to you. Okay, and we're in church, so I'm sure it will be. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Okay. Sunshine. Okay, you ready? Here we go. This could take a long time. Ice cream. Saturday mornings. Monday mornings. <laughs> Every service today, Monday mornings, everyone goes, Ugh. they're saying something, but they say it in this kind of, oh, I'm depressed, kind of, kind of way. Monday morning. Okay. Uh, summer. Winter. Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm not making a comment, I'm just saying his name. Nothing political from the platform. Chocolate. Prayer. Okay, now I don't know what you said when I said the word prayer, but interestingly around the room, just different levels of engagement and volume depending on the words I said. Often when you say the word prayer to people, I've done this in seminars before when we've done teaching on what we call spiritual disciplines, which are the kind of activities and disciplines that Christians are taught to do, reading your Bible, praying, fasting, serving, all those kind of things. Um, Often when you say the word prayer, or, or in fact you talk about reading your Bible, typically what a lot of people will respond to you is they will respond to you with something that is less positive than maybe other things. They will use phrases which communicate something about failure or frustration or the emotion of guilt. That's often what people associate. That isn't true to everybody, but often people do. And it's interesting because Jesus in Matthew 6, and this is where we're going to look at today and for these next uh, few weeks, teaches his disciples specifically how to pray. Now, There were lots of areas of the Christian life where Jesus is not as specific or as zoned in. But when it comes to prayer, Jesus seems very keen for his disciples to hear it from him as to how they should approach the issue of prayer. I think that's possibly for two reasons. First of all, he knows how important it is for us to learn how to do, and it is a learnt behavior. And secondly, he knows how much often we will struggle with it. One of the reasons we struggle with it is because praying and coming to God is a way of saying we need you, I'm dependent on you. But often we're wired in our DNA to want to pull away and be independent. So praying is, if you like, kind of counterintuitive for us at times. So we're going to look at that with that in mind. So I want you to turn to Matthew 6. We're going to read from verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It's going to come up on the screen. Uh, But we would encourage you to bring a Bible to church because it's just good discipline to learn uh, to read your Bible. Okay, verse 5. When you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That's an interesting phrase, I think. This then is what you should pray. 
or how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Note, not Harold be your name, as I thought growing up as a kid in the Methodist church. Hallowed, not Harold. Your kingdom come. I thought it was a good name for God, but anyway. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, everybody prays, don't they, at some point. Believers pray agnostics pray, even atheists who just say, well, God doesn't exist, they will pray at some point, some kind of panic prayer. My wife read me this story from the BBC News last night. It's not really a funny story, but I have to confess it did make me laugh. Firefighters in the U.S. state of Ohio have rescued a woman who can telephone 911 in terror, pleading, please, I have, wait for it, a boa constrictor stuck to my face. Some of you have already read this story. Ma'am, you have a what? The operator replied. You're outside with a boa constrictor stuck to your face. The terrified woman explained that the five-foot-five-inch snake had wrapped itself around her and bitten her nose. So don't try this at home, everybody. She said she had rescued the snake and another boa on Wednesday, which obviously was her first mistake. An ambulance was swiftly dispatched to the woman who was found lying in her driveway in the town of Sheffield Lake with a snake around her neck. It was wrapped around her neck and biting her nose and wouldn't let go, the fire chief Tim Carr said, according to the local Chronicle Telegram. They had to cut off its head with a knife to get it to let go of her face. So that's a nice cheery story to, to start with. Now, some people will pray like that phone call, won't they? We'll pray when it is panic stations. There's a situation that's happened. We're not in control. And by the way, we're not in control, but we live in the illusion we are. And suddenly it comes into focus because something happens and then we will shoot a prayer to God and say, help, just like that phone call. It's like a help prayer. That's not wrong, but that's how some people do it. And that's as far as they go. But obviously what Jesus is teaching here and what you see Jesus model through the Gospels is a far richer, deeper, further experience of prayer which God wants us to grow in and learn and Jesus models for us here. So Jesus said in Matthew 6 that there are a range of ways to express your emotions before God, a range of ways to come to Him. He says it's appropriate to come to God and thank Him. Thank God, praise Him, thank Him for His goodness, remind yourself as you thank Him, if you like, as the psalmist says, of all His benefits. Pray for His kingdom to come. That means that you're asking God for His rule and His reign to invade your life, your heart, your circumstances, the situations, your workplace. Pray for His kingdom to come. Bring your knees to Him. Ask for your daily bread, the things that are pressing upon you where you need help, you need provision. Seek forgiveness. Literally, Jesus is saying, confess Sometimes in our kind of churches, we're not so good at that. But literally come and confess, name the things that you know have not been right in your heart or in your life, and name them before Him. Find forgiveness. And it says, ask God to help you resist temptation. All these ways, Jesus says, in the prayer that has become known as the Lord's Prayer, all these things are an appropriate thing, or appropriate avenues to pray down when you come to God. But He says, as you come to Him, As you kneel, as you lift your hands, as you close your eyes, whatever it is you do when you come to pray, as you come, Jesus says, I want you to begin with these two words, and the words are, Our Father. I think those two words are possibly the most important words of the entire passage, because if you understand what Jesus is saying at the starting point, 
then it leads us into the rest of the prayer, the way that God wants us to learn how to pray. But if we get it wrong, if we don't approach God in the way that He's saying you want, He wants us to come, we can get skewed and go off somewhere that God doesn't really want us to do. We approach God in the wrong way, in other words. Just this last week, uh, myself and my family, we were up in the north of England in the Lake District, so up in the kind of mountains in Cumbria, and we did like a little trek for about three days. It was fun. We kind of carried our tents and we camped and did all of this stuff. And I was like the kind of chief expedition leader, I want you to know, <laughs> of six people. But I want to give myself that grand term. And I was the map reader. I had, a, I had already decided the route. I was the map reader. And we got to a point on the second day where it was like, ah, there's two paths. Or as my wife heckled me in the last meeting, there ought to have been two paths. But then we kind of get to the point where we're trying to work out which which path to go down, and um, I'm checking the map, I'm checking this little GPS unit, I'm checking the map, and I kind of go, I think it's this one. So we head down this path, and after about a couple minutes, three minutes, I'm looking at the map again, and I'm thinking, hmm, I'm starting to get a little uncomfortable, and our kids are starting to go very fast, so they're going a long way away from us, and I'm thinking, I don't know if this is the right path, because if this is the wrong path, we are going to end up in completely the wrong valley. Like, it's not just somewhere near. It's going to be totally the wrong place. And after about five minutes, we stopped, worked out that where I thought we had been on the map is not actually where we really were. And we had to retrace our steps, and I had to eat a bit of humble pie, and we had to kind of go back and find the right path. Now, when Jesus says, when you pray, pray using the phrase, our Father, this is your starting point. He is giving us, if you like, the map reading of all map readings. He's saying, this is the position. This is the starting place. This is where you go from. If you go from somewhere else, if you approach God in a different way that is not coming to your Father, there's a good chance you're going to go down a path and an avenue is going to lead you into a completely different valley. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to start from here. Get it right. Go from the right place and the right starting point. So what I want to do now, I want to talk about three ways in which the phrase, our Father, reminds us how we are to come and why that is important when it comes to prayer, but true about when we come to worship, when we read our Bible, whenever we approach Him, why the starting point of the way we relate to Him is so important about how we come. So, first of all, when Jesus says, I want you to pray, starting saying, Our Father, Jesus is reminding us that when you become a Christian, when you cross the line of faith, and I guess many in this room have, but maybe not all of us, you're still wondering about God or finding out, is this true? But when you get to that point, you kind of go, I believe it's true. I want to give you my life. I want you to be in control. I'm going to follow you. Not only is the promise of Scripture that God cleanses us and forgives us and wipes away the past and gives us a new future, but our relationship to Him completely changes. Now we're not, we're not foreigners and aliens anymore. Now, the Bible says, now you're children. You're being not just cleansed, but adopted into a family. You're now family. In the words of Sister Sledge, we are family. Those famous theologians, Sister Sledge. <laughs> Something completely changes in our relationship to him, which should hugely affect how we approach him. And Jesus wants it to affect how we approach him. Now, some of us have a different mental image of what God is like and what he, crucially, how he feels about me and you. Now, I don't know if you've ever had like an angry boss. And if you've got an angry boss... Careful, because they might be in the room, but you can nod. Hopefully they don't see you. 
I grew up working on a farm when I was about 16 to about 21. I used to work every summer on a farm. And the guy who ran the farm, who managed it, did not live on the farm. He lived off, you know, somewhere else. And he used to show up every Thursday. His name was William. I'm sure he was a very nice man, if you're listening. But he, he was the kind of guy who had high blood pressure written across his forehead, yeah? He just looked angry. He turned up angry. He was ready to blow at any moment. And he would come on Thursdays. And Thursday was the day, therefore, that everything would break and go wrong. Yeah, that was that. It was like we were cursed on Thursdays, basically, when William showed up. And the whisper would go around the farm, he's here. And you'd see his Porsche drive up the drive, and it was like, oh, no. And you'd spend your whole time hoping not to get something wrong, trying to placate him, hoping that he would leave okay without blowing up at you. Well, I want to suggest to you, some of us, that is the image we carry somewhere in our psyche about what we think of God and how he feels about us. We cower, hoping that we won't upset him. And maybe if we live good enough lives and do things well enough, maybe he might be good to us. And we've totally missed the point that Jesus is saying, when you come to him, when you become a Christian, it's not just that you're forgiven, it's now that you're family. And I want you to pray, come and approach him saying, my father, our father. Philip Yancey, who's wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, writes about this exact experience, that this was his experience, his mental image of who God was and how God felt about him. He says, I thought God was a God who forgives, yes, but reluctantly. After making the penitent squirm, I imagine God as a distant, thundering figure who prefers fear and respect to love. Some of us think like that. John Piper similarly says this. He's a, John Piper is an American pastor. talks of a fear that lurks in us that God is not the kind of God who really wants to be good to us, that he is not generous and helpful and kind and tender, but is basically irked with us, ill-disposed and angry. But when Jesus prays, he says, I want you to pray, our Father. Our Father. The teachers of the law were deeply uncomfortable with this. They understood God as the father of the nation, but to understand God and address him as a personal father, that had never been done before. Fourteen times in the Old Testament God is referred to. Only fourteen of God as a father. Seventeen times alone Jesus talks in the Sermon of the Mount, in this passage in Matthew, in these few chapters, and addresses God as father. And he says, this is how you are to come. You are to come knowing he is your father. That's how you are to approach him. Some of you have been held captive and your spiritual life has stunted basically because you're held captive by the belief that God is not happy with you. In fact, some of you have been taught that, that God is basically cross. You haven't given enough. You haven't prayed enough. Things haven't happened in your life because you haven't done well enough. And yet Jesus says, when you pray, come as Satan, our father, If you've been taught that God is basically angry with you, I want to tell you that is not the gospel. Someone has taught you something which is not true. Jesus says, this is how you are to approach. You see, often we think of the gospel story from our own perspective. We think uh, it's about what I need and that I need to get back to God. If you believe in God, I need to get back and I need to get right. That is true. We do need him. That is true. But actually, the most powerful side of the gospel story, the most compelling side of the gospel story is to understand that actually the gospel story is about God's desire to get to us. 
God wants to have us. God initiates the most audacious rescue plan in history to have us, wants to be close to you, wants to know you, wants to walk with you, wants to speak with you. That's why when you read the Bible, the most frequent promise in the Bible is not, I'm going to forgive you, although God does. The most frequent promise in the Bible is, I will be with you. When you understand, when, we, when I understand, when I taste that, and the psalmist says, taste and see, okay, the Lord is good. When you get that, you think, God wants to be with me. God wants to know me. God, God's for me, not against me. That's what it says in Romans 8. He's, he's fond of me. God loves me. Not loves me in a kind of Christian way. I love them, but I don't really like them. Not that kind of way. But God really is fond of me. He wants to do me good. He wants to do you good. When you get that, it means when you pray, you're not thinking, I need to placate you and pay him back and hopefully God won't be angry with me. And if I'm good enough and I pray for long enough, maybe he will turn his anger away from me. You realize, no, 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 he's for me already. I'm a child. I'm a son. I'm an heir. That's what you understand. Imagine you've been invited to Buckingham Palace. Imagine Steve is invited to Buckingham Palace, which we could imagine, couldn't we? Someone of Steve's stature and kind of like... Steve gets a letter through the post, and, and the queen has said, Steve, I really want to meet you. Here's a letter. So Steve has to get dressed up smart, which again won't be a problem for a man of his, you know, well, for Steve. Okay, and he won't be a problem. <laughs> and he's going to dress up smart. He's got a time and a date. So he has to turn up at this date. He has to go to the big gates of Buckingham Palace, and they're going to let him in. Then he has to get through security, and hopefully you will, Steve. And he gets through security, and there's a certain time, and then he's going to get in front of the queen, and she's going to say a few nice words to him, and hopefully he won't say anything silly, and it's all going to be good, right? Now, Imagine the queen goes on the TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? Do you know that show where they work out your family tree? Because the queen, I know it's difficult to believe, doesn't know her family tree, okay? And she discovers that Steve is a cousin of hers, okay? Which is entirely possible, I'm sure you could agree, okay? Imagine that as a question. Steve suddenly is quite a close relative. In fact, Steve and his family are now invited to live in Buckingham Palace. Yes! Steve has been praying this one in for several minutes now. Yes, Lord. We're going to be praying for Steve at the end. Okay? Imagine he's now invited into the palace. So now, now he's in the palace. He doesn't have to turn up at a certain time. He doesn't have to dress a certain way. He doesn't have to get through security. He's already in. Right? Jesus is saying, when you come to me in prayer, don't approach me like you've got a one-off invite and you have to get through, go through all the rigmarole and all the things, go through security. Don't approach like that. Approach like one who's already in the palace. That's what he's saying. You already live in the palace. That doesn't mean you come flippantly. It means you come knowing that the invite is to a son and an heir to come. That's why Jesus died. If we don't take advantage of it, it's like we don't avail ourselves of all that he has for us. He's saying, come as a son. You live in the palace. Imagine the, king, the queen's grandchildren don't go outside, go through security. They just tumble out of bed and turn up in their pajamas, don't they? They come into their, to their grandmother. That's what they do. We're a child. We're accepted. John 1 says this, Yet to all who did receive him, you have to receive him, okay? That's what we have to do. To those who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Okay, now we could just stop there for the rest of the day, right? If we really thought about it long enough. Um, you're in the family. If you're a Christian, you're in his family. What Jesus did on the cross is enough for you. You don't add to this. 
you come and enjoy it. And as you enjoy it, he changes you so you live an obedient life. Not in some way to repay him, though. Not only forgiven, but adopted. And the position is secure. Not fostered, adopted. So our Father reminds us, it also reminds us that when we pray, we are not repaying him, we are receiving from him. Okay, now I, we often get this the wrong way around, I would suggest. We, similarly, when it comes to reading our Bible or any kind of spiritual discipline, we often get this kind of thing the wrong way around. The reason for that is because we know we fall short. That is true. Romans says that, all fall short to the glory of God. So we know we fall short, we know we rebel, we know we sin, we know we still do that even as Christians. And because we know we owe him, and also because we know Jesus said you should do these things, you should pray, we put those two things together, right? And suddenly we make, we morph it into not something where we receive, but we morph praying into something where we, it's like we're bringing a sacrifice to God It's as something he requires from us that we ought to do in order to be right with him. So we make praying, if you like, something that we feel like, you know, we ought to do something that he needs from us. It's a way of placating him. It's a way of getting in his good books. Now, what are we doing when we do that? What we're saying is this. The cross wasn't enough for me, that he needs me to do something to repay him a bit more, that actually I'm not secure in my position as a child. Actually, I need to do some things which get me back into the right place. That is not the gospel. Prayer has nothing to do with repayment. We're not repaying him in any way. We're coming to receive from him. That's why Jesus says, come and say, our Father. He doesn't say, come and say, our King, or though you could pray that, or our ruler, or our Lord. You could pray all those things. He says, first starting place, first place on the map, right position on the GPS is our Father. Because when you pray our Father, you're reminded, I'm already home. I'm already home. There's no one to pay. I don't have to placate him because I'm already home. And Jesus' death on the cross was enough for me. There was a price to pay. It's just already being paid. So I'm home. And therefore, prayer is nothing about some kind of earning of God's goodness to me. That's why people are guilty about prayer, because they don't do it, we don't do it, and therefore we feel like we've let God down and he's not happy. That is telling us we still think of prayer the wrong way around. Prayer is about receiving, not repaying. Let me illustrate that from my own family. Okay, we have a married Sarah. We have four kids. I'm very grateful for all of them. Dinner time. We try and do dinner times together when we can. Okay, so in our house, that's probably about six o'clock. The shout goes out from downstairs. It's dinner time, and different ones of our kids get there quicker than others, and that causes a little bit of domestic stress in our house, but eventually everyone gathers. Now, no one comes to the table because they ought to be there. No one becomes because it's an obligation, okay? The only reason they come is because they're hungry and because they think they're going to get fed, okay? We don't charge our kids for the food, although maybe we should, okay? (laughs) Okay, the food is provided, the table is provided, with the invite comes the food. Now, they have to respond to the invite. No one gets fed unless they show up. We have to pray, okay? But when we come to the table, when my kids come to the table, the food is provided with the invite. Okay, should I pray? Yes. Does Jesus say I should pray? Yes. Should I respond? Yes. Is there any way in which I am bringing something to repay him? No. Do I bring anything to his table? No. Other than my hunger and my expectation that he wants to feed me and do me good. So I'm not repaying him. 
I'm coming again to receive. You have to understand, he is always, always, always the giver. We are always, always, always the receivers. That's how it works. In Luke 10, Jesus tells a story about Mary and Martha. It's an interesting little story. Okay, and the summary of the story is Jesus is going for dinner there. Martha is cooking dinner, running around, setting the table. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Now, this causes a little bit of strife, okay? Because Martha's like, Mary's a slacker, basically. She's not doing anything. I'm running around. Anybody else ever felt like this in the house? I'm running around, and you're sitting there with the remote, you know, like, come. And so Martha goes, I'm going to take it up with my union rep, and goes to Jesus and says, listen, Mary, Mary, like, I'm doing all the, I am being active, and she's doing nothing sitting at your feet. Come on, like, you speak to him, to her. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Now, when Jesus says your name twice, you really ought to listen. Steve, Steve, okay? You ought to listen because it's like, <gasps> and then he says, you are worried and distracted and upset by lots of things, but only a few things are required. In fact, one thing is required, he says, and Mary has chosen what is better. Now, people misunderstand that story and think, ah, this is a story about a contemplative person who sits and quietly, introspectively, and an activist person, and Jesus is saying, not good to be activists and running around, good to be contemplatives and sitting down. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Mary is sitting in the position of a follower at the seat of a teacher, at the feet of a, of a teacher. And that, in that culture, if you sat at someone's feet, you're saying, I'm going to follow you. So fundamentally, Jesus is saying, this passage, this story is about whether you choose to follow him first or not. Put him first in your life. That's what being a Christian is. It's saying, you go first. I'm going to put you first. But interestingly, the phrase Jesus uses is really interesting when it comes to prayer because he says, Mary has chosen what is better. The word better can be translated as the better portion. Now, this story is about a meal, isn't it? And Martha is running around thinking she is providing the meal. And Jesus says, actually, Martha, you need to understand, Mary has chosen better option because I'm going to provide the meal. Amen. (laughs) That's the best response I've had all day. (laughs) He's providing the meal, not us. So when we come to pray, I'm not bringing him something he needs. Prayer is a gift to me, not to him. He's always the giver We are always the receivers. One last little thing on this. We could say lots in this. Psalm 116 has a really interesting little phrase. It says, it basically articulates the questions that most of us have in our hearts when it comes to how do we live a Christian life and should I repay God or not and how do I relate to God? It says, how do I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? How do I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? And that is the question that lurks in our hearts. We tend to think, right, I've become a Christian. The first half of the Christian life was free. Now it was all grace. Jesus did all this. Now I'm a Christian. Now it's about work. And it's as if I'm going I'm to repay God out of, I'm going to repay him for all his goodness. And Psalm 116, how do I do that? And then it says, this is what you do. I will lift up the cup of my salvation. Now, when you lift up a cup, when a child lifts up a cup, what is it saying? saying, fill my cup. I'm saying, I'm thirsty. I want more. And Psalm 116, this is how you repay God. You don't repay him. You respond to him by lifting your cup and saying, I'm thirsty. 
I need you. I want more of you. And you kind of go, isn't that a bit like consumerist? Shouldn't we be like, well, actually, what Psalm 116 and what the economy of this whole passage is teaching is, as I drink from him, as I feed from him, what I'm saying at the same time as I receive is saying, you are the source of everything I need. That's what you do. If you were in a mountain and you as a mountain stream, you drank the mountain stream, you're drinking and receiving, but what you're really saying is this mountain stream is incredible. It gives me everything I need. So as we receive, we give him glory. That's what happens. Psalm 116, how do I repay him? I don't. I respond. I lift up the cup of my salvation. And when you pray, you are lifting up the cup and saying, God, I need you. Lastly, this. When we pray the words, our Father, when we think about it long enough, when we wait there long enough in the moment, God does a reorienting kind of work in our hearts. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've even experienced that today in worship. You come to him and you're, 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 you're kind of distracted, but by the end of a, you've sang a few songs and the Holy Spirit inside of you is going, that's true, it's true, and something inside you start to shift direction. Can you, can you relate to that? And it's as if you get reoriented inside about, ah, oh, believe it, it's true, I want to give my life to this. I don't know when you were a kid whether you ever played the kids, the child game in a party where they did pin the tail on the donkey. Do you ever play that game? In the game, there's like, they draw a donkey, you know, on a piece of paper, they stick it up on the wall, and they give you a tail, right? And what they do is they blindfold you as a child, they spin you round and round and round, and then your job is to pin the tail on the donkey, okay? Now, well, I grew up in the country, so we had real donkeys we were pinning them onto. Uh, we didn't, we didn't really. I'm just testing whether you're still with me, okay? And you kind of like, you're completely disoriented, and you stumble over, and you stick it in there, and it, hopefully you get it somewhere on the donkey's body. It's probably in his face or in his mouth, and Eventually, hopefully, someone gets it somewhere near his back end, okay? That's the game. Every day, like as soon as you leave church today, the world will start to spin you. You'll start to get spun. You'll, you'll watch something on TV. You'll read something. You'll have an altercation with someone driving through the middle of Catford. Whatever it is, it starts to spin you. And you start to get a bit disoriented. And you start to lose track, really, of who you are, that God is even present that you're a Christian, that you're a son, that you're an heir, and the world is spinning you. We get anxious and greedy and confused. We stop being fully present in the moment. We forget that God is there. We start to think we're more in control of things than we really are. And we start to get a bit disoriented. And when you come to pray, it's like God starts to reorientate you back. So you kind of go, yeah. You start to see things the way he intends you to see them. You get reminded that he's there, reminded who you're called to be. You get re-centered, re-oriented as you start to say the words, Our Father. Our Father. When you say Our Father, you're saying, I know that you're God and I'm not. Psalm 146, or Psalm 46 says this, Be still and know that I am God. That's not just about being still. It's that as you come to him, he reminds you, it's okay, I'm God. Not you. When we come to him, when we say, Father, I'm being reminded, reoriented. I'm reminded that he's God and I'm not, that he's in control and I'm not. I'm reminded again about the kind of person I want to be, the kind of dad and father and friend that I really honestly want to be. I'm reminded I don't need to strive, that he provides that I can trust him. I can even trust him for these few minutes that I'm going to withdraw 
One of the reasons we struggle to withdraw and pray is because we kind of go, I'm so busy, I cannot give up 10 minutes of activity just to pray because I've got so much to do. And yet when you come to him, he says, no, no, you can trust me. You can trust me for the 10 minutes. Like, I'll cover it. Like, more than you realize. It's a trusting prayer. Um, Jesus is like, I'm on it. You can trust me. I'm reminded about what really counts about what really matters, I'm reminded that it's not all about me. God reorientates me. I want to encourage you this week, as we start this series, I want to, right from the word go, I want to encourage you, go and find a space tomorrow, a, a place, close the door on your own where you can pray. Okay? Just give him however many minutes. I'm not going to tell you time, wait, linger long enough. Say, Father. Say it again and again. Father, Father, Father. Wait long enough and pray. Give him time. I'm going to close by just one other comment and then we're going to close. If you read through the Gospels, what Jesus teaches about prayer, pretty much every time he teaches on prayer, his teaching is about not giving up. So he says, ask and seek and knock, keep going, keep going, it will be given to you. And there's one particular story in Luke 18, which is a bit confusing, but quite powerful, where he tells a story about an old mean judge and a kind of like a widow who's basically impoverished. You know this story? And basically the story is that she badgers the judge. She, he's, he, she needs his help and she badgers him until eventually he capitulates and gives in and gives her what he wants. Now you read that story and you kind of go, okay, so we're like the widow, so we're impoverished and God's like the mean judge. So okay, seems a bit weird. That's not what that story means. The story is about opposites. In other words, we're not a widow, we're a child and an heir. So how much more will God respond to a son and a child? And God's not a mean judge. God's a loving father. So if he's a loving father and we're a son, surely if, if it happens in that scenario, surely it will happen in this situation that we come to him. And Jesus says, interestingly, right at the start of the, the, um, the passage, he goes this. I'm, I'm telling you this story. He says for two reasons. To remind you to pray, first of all, and so you don't give up. And I think it's just so powerful because we forget to pray and we often give up. So this week, I want to encourage you. Remember to pray. Don't give up. Let's stand. We're going to pray together. Let's just pray. If you know that you just think, oh, I really want this to be a season where I grow in this area, I particularly want to pray for you. So maybe you want to just lift your hands if you're comfortable to do that. And I'm just going to pray and ask, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help you and that is true of me as well. So I'm going to pray for me at the same time. Lord Jesus, I want to pray for everyone across this room who, who's just feeling like, God, I want to grow in this. I want to pray that you would just graciously help each of us this week to draw aside. Um, I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring the, the truths of what we've looked at today to bring it to our minds again, remind us that you're a good father, that you're for us, you love us that we come to receive from you and help us, Lord, out of that to get the resources you need for us to live lives that honor you, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.